Welcome to the Future of Education, a show where we consider what our education system should look like in 20 years. I'm your host, Lee Elberson, and I ask you to join me on a journey to the future as experts from the Charlottesville community explore our education system through a variety of different lenses. All right. Well, uh, thanks everyone for joining us for the uh, pilot season one, episode one of the future of education. A little bit uh, scary. Hopefully it gets picked up for uh, multiple seasons. Um, So the idea behind the future of education podcast is we are going to be thinking about what we want our education system to look like in 20 years. And what can we do now to ensure that goal? Uh, today, we are joined by a man who needs no introduction, Juan Diego Wade. Uh, in fact, I probably need more of an introduction than Juan does, but I'll try anyway. So Juan has um, dedicated his life to giving back to the Charlottesville and Albemarle community. I honestly cannot list off all the nonprofits he's involved in because it, it's just, just too many. It would take us a full hour to go through them. Um, But Juan has been on the school board now for 15 years and is intimately aware of the educations that are that are facing our community. And he is now making a run for city council. So, Juan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Just take a few minutes, fill in some details and uh, tell us how your role is dedicated to education. Thank you, Lee. And first, I'm honored to be the first of the first. And I, I see this as a, 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 the friends of the future. This is going to have a long run and people are going to be talking about it for years to come. Um, it is a pleasure to be with you today. Just a little bit of background about myself. I've, I've come, I come from a, what I feel an, an education family. My father was a public school teacher in Richmond Public Schools for nearly 40 years. And so I remember my, my five brothers and sisters and I going with him you know, part of our summer ritual was the beginning of the school year, going to my father's classroom to help him put up his bulletin boards and, and using the staple to put, to put up decorations and educational materials ar- around the room. And so that's how I was brought up in, in the importance of education, just been involved with education um, for years. And, um, and it just was always part of my life and continue on to my education in Norfolk State University and then grad school at the University of Virginia. And that's how I landed here and volunteering for primarily initially mentoring. I still believe that's the bedrock of a lot of the, um, you know, problems or if we had more of it, the improvements in our community to run for the school board in 2005. And, and that is, uh, that's kind of where I started um, uh, to run for school board then. And I was successful and I've been reelected um, four times since then. And so much changes have taken place during that time. And we're going to talk some about that. But that's how I got involved with education. It's kind of part of my fiber. It's, it's part of who I am. And, and, um, and so when I was offered the opportunity to come on this show to talk about this, I um, I jumped at it. Um, so thank you for again for this opportunity, Lee. Thanks so much, Juan. Really appreciate that. And you're right, we're going to dive into a, a litany of topics today. And yeah. we're going to go through some of the historical sp- perspective, thinking about how our education system has changed in the last 20 years. Yes, sir. Um, we're we're going to really consider some of those topics. And then we're going to fast forward and think about what do we want our education system to look like in 20 years. And then finally finishing with, okay, great. 
what can we do today to enact some of those changes? And so I uh, just want to tell everyone uh, who's watching, thank you so much for tuning in. The way this is going to work is, is uh, Juan and I are going to go through a series of questions now, but we are reserving 15 minutes at the end for all the viewer questions. So if you're watching now on Facebook Live, go ahead and just pop your questions into the comments and we will get to as many of them as we can by the end of the segment. If you're watching this later, please feel free to comment. I will make sure to, to pass your questions on yeah. to, to Juan. And yes. um, you can get in touch with Juan through a, probably a variety of different efforts. He has his own website for his city council run. And I'm sure he responds to all the citizens and, and all of his stakeholders. So yes. uh, feel yes. free to reach out to him. Well, Juan, let's go ahead and start with your background. So like you said, you come from an education family. Um, what do you think was the, was there a turning point as you were growing up that, that you realized that you needed to be a stakeholder, you needed to be a decision maker in education? And, and who were your inspirations that, that, that formed that turning point? Wow, that's a great question. So I, I think that um, certainly my father, him being in education and, and my, my, my mother, but when I was in college, I pledged my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, it's the same fraternity that, that um, um, Thurgood Marshall and Martin Luther King were part of. Education and mentoring and tutoring is ingrained in that um, fraternity. And when I was an undergraduate, that was something that I volunteered to do. Um, and I did with some elementary schools there in Norfolk. And when I got here, it was a natural transition to do it here as well. And, and so that was one of the things, and I've been offered opportunities to get on the school board before 2005, but uh, it, for me, it just wasn't the, the time. I was really learning and understanding the community. And my first effort here was uh, mentoring young men um, at Walker Upper Elementary School from the fifth grade and I followed them all the way through the 12th grade. And during that time, you get to know the young man and their families and their siblings and understand um, where things could be improved. And that's one of the things that really sparked me to try to address some of those issues from a policy level. And that's when I said, okay, I need to, some of these things I can't address pe person by person. We need to address at a policy level, so. Yeah, you know, just to kind of pulling on that thread a little bit, Juan, how do you find, how do you balance your time between that direct impact of mentoring and then the very high level of, of trying to, to make policies? And, and, and what are your personal struggles with trying to balance that time? Yeah, yeah. So, man, you really have to have an incredible spouse to understand that, um, that this is the impact that you want to have in the community because it takes a lot of time because I still mentor three or four young boys today, even though I'm very busy with the other thing, because not only does that allow me to really understand the plights that they're having, but also um, I think it's having a real impact, um, definitely in these young men's lives, but also in our community. So this is definitely balanced. You, you do what you want to do. You, you prioritize what you want to prioritize. And and I just, I don't have as much free time maybe that I would like, but man, when I go to bed, I really feel good that I know that I've, I'm, I'm making a, a difference. So, so it's really about prioritizing and, and wanting to make a difference. So it's not rocket science, but it's the impact that I feel like I want to make. Yeah, great. And, and, and Lee, I'm sorry, but before you go on, and I just wanted to just give an example of the impact it's having just this morning, I had coffee with a young man that, um, and he is almost 30 years old. 
and we began our mentoring tutor relationship when he was in the fifth grade. And, and, and so stayed with him, mentored him throughout high school and college, and he had his first job, wonderful little downturn because of COVID. And we got together to talk about what the next steps would be. What are some options? And that is what I call, you know, you know, being one of those anchors in his life that he can turn to in, in addition to his parents and maybe other people. But I want to be part of that, uh, of that. And, and so I think that that's, that is what mentoring over a lifetime means um, to me. And so it's just ironic that I met with him this morning and we started off maybe uh, you're 29 and you're, you're 15, 16 years. It's wonderful. Yeah, I think, you know, Juan, that, that probably resonates with a, a lot of teachers in that, you know, sometimes you don't get to see the immediate fruits of your labors. You invest a lot of time in students and they don't immediately see the benefit of it. Sometimes, like you said, it's a decade later that they come back yeah. and say, do you realize the impact you made? And so yes. you can't really be in that position unless you truly love it, I, I would say. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think, Juan, thinking about your role on the school board, you know, when we when I think about the education system, obviously teachers come to mind. But uh, can you go ahead and just give us an idea of, of the, the litany of people that make our school systems effective and some of the other stakeholders in the education system that maybe sometimes we overlook? Yeah, yeah. So uh, when, when um, I visit schools and, and for a year, I served as president of the of the state school boards association. So I've represented the 133 districts in the whole state. And I had the opportunity to visit st um, um, school districts from Fairfax to, to Franklin, from from Wise to, to, to Winchester. And when I would go into schools, one of the first persons that I would like to meet would be the janitor. Because they are the ones to make that 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 school presentable, make it warm, so that you can um, uh, feel an environment where you can learn. And so, definitely, it's the teachers because they're the bedrock. In addition to the principals, but also we want to acknowledge the bus drivers because many times that bus driver is the very first person that that young child sees after the parents drop them off or leave them at the bus stop. And can you imagine if that bus driver was mean and gnarly and it's like, sit down, you know, how that child day would begin, man. And so it's real important that we make that bus driver feel as important as possible because, because they are. So the bus driver is important. The, um, in, in our district, the cafeteria worker is important because we know that many of our students, the only two you know, nutritional meals that they're going to get is that breakfast and that lunch that they're going to get that, that day. And so the um, cafeteria workers, the bus drivers, the janitors, in my mind, they're just as important as, as, the, um, as the teachers and the principals. Because if you take those, those, um, those people away, then um, you know, it, we won't be able to educate um, that child because they won't feel loved. They won't feel nourished. Uh, so those are those are some people that I think that we need to hold in equal re regards um, as in addition to the teachers and the principals. Yeah, Juan, I guess, you know, that sentiment really embodies that expression. It takes a village to raise a child. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's an entire team of, of educators and, and, and administrators and, and, and everyone to to make impact. Well, you know, again, thinking about the, the school board's role, Juan, it, 
you know, obviously, you know, one of their primary roles is to ensure that the education of our children is happening. What are some of the other roles and responsibilities that come with being a school board member that that we don't really capture? Yeah, um, legally, the school board has three roles. Hire the superintendent, adopt budget, the adopt the budget, and approve or adopt on policy. Those are three legal documents, I mean, requirements. But in the Charlottesville community where we're so closely connected, man, it's so much more, it's so much more. We're on duty essentially 24 seven because if we are in the grocery store, I was just walking last night in my neighborhood, someone stopped to talk about the issues of reopening the schools. You always, and I, you know, if someone comes to me and says that, I can't say, well, I, you know, I can't take that as uh, you, you know, Go talk to the principal, you know, about the the the, the kudos and, and the curse, if you will. So we're always on duties. And, and so when I get comments, because of, it could be other times when someone could be talking about an issue that they're having, I take that and give it to the proper um, person, even though in some districts where it's much bigger, that school board member or whatever, they will say, well, that's not me. You need to go to do that. I, we know that this district is 10 square miles where it's not, it's no um, districts, magisterial districts. And so we cover the whole city, which I, which I like, by the way. And so it's, um, those are the three requirements, but it's really so much more in Charlottesville where we're really um, connected, connected and so relational. Great. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, another thing is, especially in the, in the last year, maybe you could speak a, a little bit to the increased emphasis on the school board, right? I mean, I think uh, three years ago, how many people would attend school board meetings, Juan? Yeah, yeah, we have found that, um, you know, although being in, you know, virtual has not been ideal for a lot of people, but we find that we have had so much more interaction, more people participating um, throughout, you know, some of our meetings been very tough issues and they've lasted five, six hours. And we, you know, based on the numbers that we see for participants, we have had well over a hundred people to attend the entire time. And surely if we were at the high school meeting, I just don't think that people would be able to do that. that. And we've done it before. And it's been empty, you know, by the end. And I understand that people can multitask, they can have it on and maybe help with dinner or do some other things. And that's, that's fine. We all are, are busy. But that, that is definitely something that has increased over the last year is the participation. And I know many school districts, although they want to get back to meet in person. And by the way, last night, the school board was the first time we have met in person in over a year. We're meeting to discuss the logistics of hiring a new superintendent. But man, to get together with my other school board members in person, man, it just felt really good. It felt really good to see. And I've seen them in person before, but not everyone um, together. Um, but after this is over, we're going to be meeting back in person, but we're going to figure out a way, not just Charlottesville, but I mean, I'm sure many districts is to is to to go hybrid, you know, type of thing to do things that, you know, in a, in, um, we had started to be on the TV station, but maybe to go online and kind of have the same type of um, connection and communication that we had the, the last year. 
Yeah, because I'm guessing it's you've lowered the barrier to entry when you have it over Zoom, right? Anyone can sort of log in from any device and, and, and chime in, whereas it, when you have it in person, it's it's a little more logistically challenging for, for people to, to come in and join in the conversation. Yeah, yeah, you have to, you know, many times maybe had to get a babysitter, you had to get transportation, you, um, you know, I think that people have definitely seemed a little bit more spur of the moment to make a comment or to put a question in chat. And if you are at the meeting in person, you may be nervous to speak in front of a crowd and, and um, maybe you would not have shared that, that comment. So um, it, it definitely um, has lowered the barriers um, in a lot of sense because you can download the Zoom link to your phone. And if that's the only device that you have, you can, you can easily do, do that. And we know that a lot of people have done that. So I think it's, it's, it's been a lot of bad over the last year as far as the COVID, but this has been one of those things that has been um, one of the areas that we can see how we can improve on. Great. You and know, continue. that's, yeah, that's, that, that's a great transition, Juan, because I, I, I'd like us to, to speak a little bit about, um, you know, since you've been on the school board now for, for 16 years, mm -hmm. you know, compared to 20 years ago, what do you think some of the significant changes to our education system have been? So I think that that um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some changes that we have had here in Charlottesville that I think has been really some of the game changers. Um, um, and 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 one is is our introduction of the three and four year old program. Traditionally, you have kindergarten. And then it was pre-kindergarten, but we realized that in, in Charlottesville, we wanted to, we need to get many of our students even earlier. So, so I think it's pretty common to have a four-year-old program throughout the state, but Charlottesville, we have a pretty robust three-year-old program. And a lot of that is funded locally. And I think that we're on a few ones in the state that actually has that. But anyway, we have the three and four-year program where we have really done introduce the um, school system in education and in a whole environment to three and four years old um, students um, earlier. Another thing that as we have done is that, you know, we found that many of our students, they were not achieving um, at the level that we would like. And, and so we was like, we need more time with them. We need, if we had um, more time. And so we have this program called Bridges Program where um, essentially the stu students can stay back after school, it's voluntary, um, another hour, hour and a half, um, part of that will be playing outside to get some energy out. We give them a snack, but we also have about 45 minutes of just pure, you know, whether it's reading or literacy, that's, that was the focus, maybe some math, but primary literacy. And over a course of the year, that's equivalent to another two or three weeks of, of school. And that was a, a big benefit. Another is, is, um, our district's, um, efforts to, get more students to take the SAT and um, ACT, and not, uh, not only more diverse, but also we would pay for those. Um, we introduce associate program, and that is something that, that um, with our connection with PVCC, that we could potentially pay for first semester or some classes for some students to lower that cost of education. This is um, um, something that's not real sexy, but it's a what we call a time link. This is a program where we could connect 
the, the, um, the different programs that we have and the teachers and things. It's basically a, a um, software system that combines a lot of different things. And that really has made us so much more efficient. That was about three or four years ago. And I think something that we have really pushed um, and incorporated is our participation with things like City Schoolyard Garden, which is now Cultivate Charlottesville, and other outside nonprofits to, and partnerships to come into the district because this community has so many expertise and, and programs, like, like your program, um, um, Lee. Yeah. Um, to come in and work with our students. And, um, and so that, those are some of the, the biggest changes that I've seen over the last 15, 20 years. That's great, Juan. Yeah, you covered a lot of things. So let's, let's, uh, I'm going to try to, to mm -hmm. review them. So the three to four year old program, I think I've heard a lot of parents talk about this, you know, I guess historically, we think, hey, you start a kindergarten, you start a first grade, you're fine. But there's a big gap there. And it sounds like the, 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 the Charlottesville school program is trying to get kids involved earlier. That way there's, there's not a big a gap when they get started. Is, is that right? Yeah. So, so Lee, what, what we found, and I certainly found this out is that Charlottesville being a university town that some of our kids come into, let's say first grade, uh, knowing, you know, some of them come in ready to read and can read Harry Potter. And some of our kids may come in, may not know how to spell their name and know their colors. And so it's a big gap. And so we want to take those kids that need a little bit more help and say, let's let's introduce you a little bit earlier. Because, you know, because of the economy, the way things work, maybe their parents certainly can't afford to do the travel and things like that before that maybe some other kids. But because they're working two or three jobs, because of housing costs and things like that, they're not able to spend the time maybe to read, sit down and read with their kids and things like that. And so we understand that. And so that's some of the, the um, opportunity gaps. You know, I used to call them achievement gap. It's really opportunity gaps that, that we have in our community. And so that's some of the resources that we know that we have to put in if we want to try to equalize. Um, we're going to talk about equity a little bit later, the, some of the efforts that, that we can do. We can address equity in a certain sense, but it's going to take resources. And a lot of those resources is, is, is financial. And so because our graduation rate now is pretty much the same for us, our African-American students and our white students, but they come in at a different level, it's taken us 11, 12 years to, to bring those kids back up, but it's taken it's so much resources. Um, those those after-school programs that, that, um, that I, I mentioned, it, and we know that we have to hit it hard those first three or four years. By the time they're third or fourth grade, a lot of course things are already set as far as learning. So we want to hit them heavy with a lot of resources and programs early on. Yeah, I think, again, you're hitting on something really important. And again, the theme, I mean, is, is very much that it takes a village to raise a child. And you're talking a lot about community involvement, right? Um, yeah. Certainly, Claiborne Education. You know, we started Better Better Future Foundation to help under-resourced students. But there's so many out there. City of Promise, Ready Kids, Computers yeah. for Kids. Um, you know, I, I just yeah. think that there's so many programs there, and we want more community involvement, not just with nonprofit, but you know, for-profit tutoring businesses. You know, what can we do, like you said, to support students? Because I think one of the things that really resonated with me is that. 
not every student is going to need the exact same amount of education and not even at every year, right? Maybe a student in, in third grade is going to need a lot of help with math. And then by the time they're in fifth grade, maybe they don't need as much, but like we need those programs to support them at the times in which they need them the most. Yes, yes, uh, agreed. How can we encourage more participation with our community in, in, in the school system? Do you know, what can we do to encourage more of that participation? So um, I, I think that part of it is some things that we have to do as a school district. We need to put out there because school districts are really not into marketing type of things like maybe private companies are. So I think that we need to do a better job of saying, hey, we got this great product here. We could use some help in doing certain things. And, and chances are what I found in this community is that there's someone in this community that say, yeah, I can help with that. My company can help with that. How can we help? And we want to be able to them to come to the front door of the schools and say, this is what you can do and make it easy for them to help us as a district and ultimately um, their future workers or customers that they're going to be um, um, volunteering um, or assisting with in the, in the schools. Yeah. And, you know, something else you talked about is, you know, um, thinking about career trajectory, you know, I think uh, having uh, coordinated efforts with PVCC, I think the efforts done at KTAC do a great in terms of offering a, a wide array of career trajectory options. Um, so do you think like, how important are those programs and, and, and how do we diversify career trajectory when I think historically, we've always thought of, you know, getting a four year college degree, that's sort of the benchmark for success. How do we get away from that and start broadening that spectrum on? Yeah, that, that's an uh, excellent point. I, I served in, uh, several times as chair of the KTEC board. And many of those discussions talked about what we needed to do at the high school, at the student's high school home base, and talking in, to the guidance counselors and letting them know about what's happening over here at KTEC. That it's a wonderful program, some wonderful job opportunities. Um, I remember um, assisting a young man a few years ago that through the KTEC program, he was able to get his fire certification and his high school degree and, and be hired as a firefighter. So he finished high school, he already had a job making $40,000 a year and had the trajectory of a, a lot more because he still was planning to go to college and get the training. And so all of that training he had he received in, in high school from KTEC. And we have many um, businesses in the community that come to KTEC that we are willing to help with scholarships, with training, with materials. And, um, and I'm thinking of one in particular is, is auto body um, and automotive um, me mechanics. They, they could use as many graduates that we can produce at, at, at KTEC that we can, you know, each year. Uh, and those are jobs that you get out. You have great benefits. You know, you start off with the low, high 40s, maybe $50,000 a year. And you're doing something ideally that you, you love um, to do. And these are jobs that it doesn't take four years of, of college to do, but it takes some significant additional training, maybe for a year or two. But you're going to have jobs of stability for as long as you 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 want that's one thing that they're not taking cars overseas to get them fixed and shipping them back they're taking them to the corner market or to the corner 
place where they feel they know someone is um, they did feel trusted the, to service their, their vehicle. Of course, there's the um, H, HVAC and construction with the economy ticked up. Man, and, and those are the things that KTech can give students hands-on learning. And so we need to do a better job again of letting the guidance counselors know that this exists and that, and that you know, when I was in high school, it was the knowing that the tech center was for the kids that, that didn't fare well academically. I can tell you that it certainly changed that many of our students rank high now in their home school as far as their GPAs and things like that but they know that what they want to do with their future. And they don't, they don't need a four years of taking a lot of courses um, and paying, you know, you know, student, a private four year school now can easily go for 70, $80,000. And you can be in debt a quarter of a million dollars with a job that may be paying 30, $40,000 a year. The math just doesn't add up. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Juan. And, and one we, we talked about briefly before we started, uh, you know, a shocking statistic I looked up is, uh, NCAA produced this great report that said, like, of the tuition that comes into U.S. colleges, only 1.3% is dedicated to scholarships. Yeah. And, yeah. And in thinking about the, the, the poverty level, like you said, that math just do doesn't seem to add up. And, you know, I think the other benefit of, of a program like KTech is you're going to get a job that you know is there immediately. Whereas if you go to a four-year program, you might end up in a discipline that doesn't immediately translate to a job. You know, it's surprising right. how many times you get a college degree and these students don't can't get a job for a year or two, and you have to start paying off those student loans. Yeah, yeah, and and they find that that you know because you know when we hire a teacher, as long as that um, as long as that the um, college is accredited, you know. We we don't ask if you paid sixty thousand dollars a year or you went to a state school and got it for twenty thousand dollars a year. You're going to be paid the 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 same uh, amount. And so those are some of the decisions that I think that we need to, um, along with the parents and the student support system, kind of think long long term. Um, because a lot of times people want to go to their dream school, and that's great, but you know, you want to think about the loans and long term, because if you have a, a lot of debt, then that's going to delay potentially starting your family, potentially buying your car and getting your house and things like that. So just want to look at the big picture. Yeah. Juan, do you think in the school system, can, is, can we do a better job of, of discussing the economics of college and, and, and just helping somebody understand that even if your job is making $10,000 more with a college degree, if you have $150,000 in loans, that doesn't make sense. Can, can we do better in terms of financial management programs and the economics of college in, in high school? I think that, that we can, but a lot of that, I think, also would be part of the community resources because it's hard for you know a, a school to say, you know, you got into college is something that you've been talking about all your life and now to say, well, you really don't need that. And, and so I, I think that uh, the math that I did recently with a graduate of a young lady that I was mentoring, she graduated four years from high school four years ago. She got into a great private school in the ACC. They just won the national championship and 
she wanted to study social services and that school was about $51,000 a year. She also got into several state schools, VCU, Radford, James Madison, and Longwood, all between twenty-two dollars and $27,000 a year. And so this young lady who parents had not, had not gone to school, we sat down and, and this may not be the scientific way to do it. And, and, we, and we talked about the financial package that the private school was giving her, not too much because they were sitting pretty and they had more students than they had. And, and so they were offering her about five or $6,000. So it was about $45,000 and that's only coming home once or twice a year. And so she was gonna come out with about $200,000 in, in debt. And the state schools offering her a lot of money and she probably won't have to pay about $10,000 a year. But she really liked school. And so we talked about her major and her major, she was only going to, just looking at you know the jobs that was available then, that she was gonna be making about $32,000 a year starting off. And so we just kind of did the math. Anyway, she's graduated from VCU, got a great job, little or no debt, but it took some time and it was that trust that she had in me and, and, and the family to kind of figure that, that out. Um, she, of course, she would have been happy at the other school, but looking at it financially, you just kind of have to look at it um, from that point of view. Yeah. And I think, you know, Juan, you pointed out something really important. We're not trying to be dream crushers, right? If somebody's yeah. dream their entire life is they want to go to college and, and, they, and they, they want to be a doctor or they want to be an engineer, you know, that that is not our, you know, we want to actually facilitate that. I think what you're pointing out is we just want to make sure that they are not romanticizing the outcome. And I think we all do that, right? Mm -hmm. You really romanticize what's going to happen at the end of it. And then when you actually get into the reality of the position, you think, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And it sounds like you're just trying to paint that reality for them. And then once they are sure of that, you know, we help facilitate that in whatever way we can. Exactly. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, Juan, we're getting ready to go into future thinking, but before we do that, um, can, can we identify, you know, what are what are some of the the areas you think we we have to grow in terms of our education system? What are some of the top three areas you think we we should be devoting resources towards? I think it's um, equity in education. I think that we definitely have to. This is something that um, we as Charlottesville District. Uh, we have been emphasizing over the last few years. It doesn't hurt having, it doesn't help having been on the front page of New York Times, but it really focused us into addressing that. I think that we have to look into modernizing our um, facilities. For example, and we're not unusual, we have great facilities, but we haven't had a new one since 1975 or, or, or the mid 70s. I think we have to address. Um, Transportation, um, um, we're realizing now that it's a lot that we can do improve with, with that. And um, I think that um, we need to try to address high state testing. Um, those are areas that we really need to change from. I think many schools are now seeing that, man, once we took out those SAT and tests like that, we have such a more diversity of students that are applying because those tests really, um, you know, have, I've seen it. And of course, nationally, you're seeing how they can be skewed with paying people to take it and things like that. But 
I really don't think it, it measures this, the, the, the real academic. I mean, it, it's good at comparing you with other students, but doesn't measure whether you're going to be successful in that particular facility. So those are areas I think that we really see that I personally, you know, based on my long tenure in education that we can, can grow on or areas that we need to improve upon. Great. I, I follow up and, and, and something we've, we've heard a lot as people talk about learning loss this past year and people talk about lack of motivation. Can you tell me what are, what are some of the positives that have come out of this last year of COVID and, and, and things in the school system? Yeah, so I think I mentioned part of it before as far as our school board meeting, where we have more parents and students um, particip participating. I think something that it did, it really expedited um, school districts across the country in dealing with um, virtual learning because many districts had that, that as a goal that they're gonna have one or two percentage of their students doing a virtual learning in the future man, we were thrust into doing essentially overnight. And I think over the last year that um, we found that many students thrived in that and really did well. But many students, we know now that it's not their best avenue of, of learning and help them out because that's a lot, big part of college now. Um, so it, 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 it allows us to really see where we need to make some improvements. Because I, I do know that uh, Charlottesville, many districts are already going back now in the hybrid format, but starting in August, we will primarily be in person. But I think a lot of districts now will have a small part of their classes being all virtual or hybrid or some component of that. We need to see exactly what that's going to look like. But I think that that is some of the positives that um, has come out of this. And, um, um, and it also has sparked many Another positive is that it's brought new community partners um, to the forefront that we didn't have um, before, particularly to address things like food um, inequities. Yeah. yeah, you hit on exactly what my follow-up question was going to be is, is, you know, is there a place for, for virtual schooling? If it is safe for us to go back to in-person learning, it sounds like you do think that there's going to be a place for, for virtual learning and potentially sort of asynchronous learning. You think, in, in, you think there is a place for that in Charlottesville City Schools? I, I definitely um, think so. Um, you know, before it was um, some students on a very particular basis, if they had uh, illness or, or something where they couldn't come to school, that we would set up special plans for them and things. But now I just, I don't think it would be that special. It will be something that we will factor in that um, and um, some of the issues that we have to address with um, the, the teachers is how is that going to look if they're if the teachers are teaching their regular classes Monday through Friday, but we have a percentage of, of students, maybe I'm, I'm going to say 15, 20 percent that say I want to do it um, all virtual. How do we. Uh, you know, do we put just cameras in, in the classroom to to do that? So those are things I think that a lot of districts across the um, state and country will be trying to figure that out. What right. that would look like. Yeah, that that's great. And this is uh, propelling us into future thinking. So the, the theme of this podcast is what do we want our education system to look like in 20 years? And so you being a, a, a very... You know, very practical person. 
you know, we, let's fast forward 20 years from now, Juan, and, and you've, you've had your hand in this and, and you've spent some time. What, what could our education system look like in, in 20 years, given some of the changes you recommended? Yeah, yeah. So I think that um, what one of the big changes that I, w- I would like to see that I think that will take place is somehow the, 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 the language issue. Because right now in 2021, in Charlottesville City Schools, which is very small, 4,300 students, we have 51 languages spoken in our small district, 51. I'm just going to quickly reel off it, and I have it written down here, the top 10. It's Spanish, Dharit, Nepali, um, Arabic, Pashto, Swahili, Karen, <laughs> Mahi, Mahi, and Farsi, and Kran. Those are top 10 right now. And um, we have 50, you know, another 41 or so other. And so when we get this in right now, we have to either hire translators or go through some type of services. But of course, we want them to learn English. Um, but um, that is, I think that that is something that we're going to figure out how we're going to address that in a lot more smooth process. Um, and, and I think that uh, another future um, that I see in the, in the, in the um, education in the future is the di- digital technology. We've, we saw the importance of that now. I think it's going to be a lot more. I think that, you know, um, that in, in the future, in addition to the school books and things they get, they're going to get uh, an iPad or, you know, and I know a lot of students do that now, but it's not the norm. I think that we're going to be... Um, re-envisioning the spaces that we we teach in and not just you know moving tables and chairs and things around but but by um you know using spaces for um a lot of different um things um for both inside and outside of um um the schools and you know many schools now of course are used for church and other services um out, outside of the schools but i think we're going to be re-envisioning the 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 spaces for for the school. We may not in the schools that features they they may not be you know a hundred thousand square feet. They may be twenty and using the library during the day when it's not as many people in there, something like that, or, or some other spaces. Um, I think that they're going to be that the education is definitely I think going to be a lot more personalized. For you know um, we can say that you have to learn um, geometry, but, you know, if you want to go on a particular track for your career, then you're going to learn this specific type of geometry or this um, focus on this area. Um, and that, um, that schools will be um, used kind of as a learning hub and used to the strength of the community, particularly places like Charlottesville, to deliver um, collaborative learning. So we're, the way I see that is that if we have experts in this community that specializes in something and they don't have a, a, the teaching degrees or licenses, we just put them through the, the background check and things like that. They don't have to go through the Department of Education to get a teacher certification, but they can teach classes on starting a business or HVAC or something like that. I think it's going to be a lot more um, of that type of learning that's going to go on. It's going to be a lot more normalized and, and not a, you know, 
a big hoopla if it like now if it goes on if it takes place. Um, uh, I think it's going to be a lot more project-based learning, um, and, and some districts are focusing on that now. I'd like to see us do more of that here in places like Charlottesville, but I think that's, again, going to be more of the, the, the norms. And I think that, uh, I've talked about this before, but the high state tests, I think that a lot of those are just going to be um, el eliminated, and many major schools now have already seen that this is very culturally biased and that it's really geared towards if you are white, elite, and have privileges to get training to take those tests, that that um, that is going to to change. But I also think that tests like the SOL tests and things like that will will change as as well. Um, I think it's going to be a lot more student ownership. As I have one more after this, student ownership of of the of the um, their education and their um, learning and that one of my um, pet peeves is, is mentoring. I think that that is going to, I would like to see every student when they come into school in the first grade, get a mentor that can follow them through that, man, that, that would be wonderful. Blunt, that's it. Those are some great things. Uh, yeah. One quick follow-up on yeah. the, the language issue. You know, uh, you're talking about um, the students coming in, making sure that we have a way to communicate with them, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's definitely falls under the purview of the school board. What about the parents? If you're trying to increase parental involvement, you know, I, I know a lot of times I've met with students and, you know, they'll say, oh, actually, my, my mom only speaks Swahili. And yeah. so I need to translate. Do we feel like there's going to be an issue with the, the, the learning gap with parents and in, in getting their involvement? Yeah, that's an excellent point. So one of the things that we did in Charlottesville, and I know that a lot of school districts are doing something similar, is that we hired two or three what we call outreach personnel. And they are their go their job is to go into the communities, go into the homes of the, the parents like you, you mentioned, and finding out what they need to do to come to the PTO meeting or to come to the parent teacher conference to get them involved to get them engaged and if we found out that they need some translation if they need food if they need any type of services we want to have them there to provide that because we know when that is when that stress level is eased and that child is going to be eased and that child would then be more open to learning um, and that's we found it a lot of, and that's something that we just started last maybe five or six years ago is to hire these individuals. And they're very seldom actually in the schools. They're actually more so in the community, in, in friendship court, in um, the communities, in the homes, finding out what the parents need and let them know about the, that. Okay. You know, next week, the um, it's time to, it'll be time to sign up for um, preschool and things like that to, to let them know about those type of things. Because a lot of times, with the, the stress of the job and things like that, they that is not on their fr front burner, but by the time they find out about it, the deadline may have passed or may, may have been um, full. Great, yeah. Um, I guess a sort of a separate question from this one, you know, one thing I, I think that we've, we've noticed nationwide over the last year is 
there's been a, a, a sort of divide between independent schools and public schools. And a lot of that is driven by the fact that independent schools over this last year, by and large, retained in-person schooling. And so yeah. in, in thinking about in 20 years, what should the relationship be between it, like independent private schools and, and public school systems, right? We, we treat them as two separate entities, but is there a more collaborative approach we can take in your mind? Yes, uh, yes, it, I think it's, it definitely is. And um, I know that um, the new like headmaster at, at St. Anne's Belfield, I'm great friends with her and we're talking about some things that we can do collaboratively um, together. And I know that they're planning a program um, to, to, to try to address a community issue um, with um, some staff students and some, some um, public school students. Those are the type of that community collaboration and partnership that I was mentioning, but I think it's definitely will have to be more of that um, in in the future um, because in it it will help all students because when they go to college they're going to be learning, living, playing um, together as they and certainly when they finish they're going to be working um, um, together and so it's so it'd be so much beneficial if they can do it, you know, at, at this point when, when they're still growing and learning um, um, as, as, as high school or, or middle school students. Great. Yeah. I love to hear that. We work pretty closely with St. Anne's and I, I, I love to see more collaborative approaches. And I think that probably goes into your vision for this learning hub, right? Making the public school system a collaborative hub where it's not just teachers and students, right? It's teachers and students and nonprofits and other independent schools. And, and you're trying to encourage students to take ownership of their education, right? Like that goal, it sounds like in your mind is sort of a byproduct of making all these other things happen, right? If there's more project-based learning and it is collaborative, then students will want to take ownership of their life. Is that kind of what your vision is? Yeah, yeah. It's like they're much more possessive of it, more proud of it. If that they had a hand into it, it's not thrust a, a, upon them. And a lot of times, you, you know, it's like, we're told to teach it this way, the state. And, 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 and one of the things that, that I found out that I didn't realize when I got on the school board is probably close to 90% of a student's day is prescribed by the state saying you have to teach A, B, and C. And so that leaves very little flexibility for a, a principal or school to say, okay, we want to do this newfangled thing or whatever. There's very little flexibility in, in doing that. And, and so I think that if, if we are given more flexibility by the state and certainly then allowed to give it to the student, I think that we're going to have less truancy. We're going to have less discipline problems and things like that. Um, but I think that if you get to, them to buy into it more than, um, you're going to find you're going to have less of those problems. Yeah, I'm a I'm a very large advocate of project-based learning, and the the charter schools that have done like purely project-based learning in the last decade or two mm -hmm. have seen significant results there. And so I think that that efficacy and that movement, like you said, hopefully enforces policy level at the at, at the state level, like you said, so that the school does have the autonomy. To, to be able to make those changes. Cause I think you and I have both been in a position where a student will say, what am I actually gonna, you know, I've had students like, what am I actually gonna use this trig function for in my average life? And I think 
you know, I don't really have a better answer other than it's just an academic thing you have to go through. And yes. not that solving problems itself isn't great for, for problem solving ability, but like yeah. you said, why don't we frame it in a way that they can see the end goal and say, oh, I want to be a, a civil engineer. Now mm -hmm. I can see why this specific problem applies to that, right? That's yes. the idea yeah. behind goal-directed persistence. So I think that's that's great. So let's move on sort of to the final uh, segment before we go to some of our viewer questions. Yes. Um, so in thinking about what can we do now to make these th this vision of, of more personalized project-based learning, more collaborative environments, doing away with, with standardized tests that, that force people to teach to the test, um, and, and integrating more digital technology, overcoming these language issues, and all this with the goal of having students take more ownership of their education. So my first follow-up question is, what stakeholders do we need more involvement from to make some of these changes happen? Juan? Yeah, so I'm I'm all about kind of getting the low-hanging fruit first. And I think that some of the lowest hanging fruit that we could do is that if you as a community member or organization or business, if you want to have an impact, you know, on um, your local school district is to say, you know what, I have a couple hours uh, free a week or a month. And, um, let me go and, and mentor this young lady, this young man. You don't have to be perfect. You, you don't have to, you know, been an A student or anything like that. I think if that young person knows that someone has invested a very precious commodity time in them, man, um, that will boost their confidence and let them know that they can go out and maybe make mistakes and feel like someone is there to support them. You know, a lot of times, in, in addition to, to the parents, but, but, but maybe not. But that is something that I think that, man, we can do today. And a lot of kids will need that. You know, we're already talking about, okay, when schools start full scale again next summer, I mean, this summer, that it's gonna be a lot of kind of um, ment mental, you know, stability things that we're gonna have to get, you know, we're gonna have to be prepared for with our students. Cause they, many of them, had not would not have been in school it would have been close to 18 months if they started March and maybe go back August or September I mean that's that's a long time and then if you're a freshman in high school or going into the the middle school those kind of tough transition years as far as um, um, just just growing it's going to be really tough and so if they have someone there to talk to and say well this happened I'm not sure what to do and definitely as they start to apply for college if their parents didn't go to college and they don't understand this process of FAFSA and um, um, getting letters of recommendation, just to have someone there to to bounce some ideas off, those that 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 could mean the world to um, many of our students that that you know that I am aware of. And so so yes, those are some things that I would suggest. Well, Juan, that, that brings up an interesting point. You know, this concept of learning loss is all over the news. That's it. It's all everybody's talking about. You know, Rosa Adkins is working with Virginia Learns to try to think about how to overcome it. But it is assuming that there's a learning loss. And, and students are seeing that as I should be here. How do we overcome this should mentality when we knew that there was no way this past year of COVID was going to be the, like the year before? Mm -hmm. You know, are, do we need some radical changes in our in our benchmarking process mm -hmm. moving into next school year? Yeah, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that that much. Um, 
but um, about how to address it. I mean, I, this summer we're having a very robust summer school. Um, and I know that some colleges know that um, the students are not gonna have that same knowledge level that maybe that they were doing for the outreach um, from communities of color. They know that, you know, some kids that they were able to get the, the tutoring and things that they need that they're not gonna miss as much. But I think that we'll, some of the things that we're gonna have to do as a school district is look at extending the school day, day for the next maybe two or three years, another 15, 20 minutes or something like that, really evaluate students that we think are, are behind and, and put, continue to provide that individual learning or provide more of that individual learning to see where students need to um, catch up that they weren't doing where, what they were supposed to do or wasn't able to do during the last year. Yeah, you know, uh, thinking if, if we're at an opportunity right now to sort of rethink it, Juan, what, um, how could we make project learning happen today? You know, what, what can the school board do? What can the mayor do? What can the state do to, to make something like a project-based learning initiative happen now? And is there an opportunity to do it now, whether rather than to let students fall into the pre-existing um, school system mantra and, and, and change things now? I think that what we need to do is to, to make it happen now is in, is to where it's happening now on a, on a kind of a small scale, a particular teacher might be doing it is, or school is to give examples to other teachers and principals and us as the school board to say, this is what's happening. This is the outcome or the benefit so that that, that, that can kind of um, um, spread. And, and what we can do as a school board and as a community is to provide space for that because maybe school may not be the best space. Maybe it could be some of our organizations or our businesses around town to provide that space. And we also can provide as the school board and the city council is to provide resources for that if, it, if we need to some additional funds to change the school around to provide that um, more project-based learning um, atmosphere and environment. That's, wow. You know, yeah. I, I've actually got so many uh, questions in terms of uh, how to shape our education system now. Yeah. But uh, we've got quite a few questions from uh, viewers that, that, I, that I do want to get to. And yes, sir. I, I've got some, some good ones. Some of them are right at you, Juan. So, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess but before we get into that, I, I did ask you this ahead of time. You know, something I'm interested in um, what role should the mayor of Charlottesville take in changing our education system? The mayor's got a lot of responsibilities for the city, but what role should the mayor have in, in, in taking ownership of our education system? So I see the role of a mayor very similar to the role of the um, school board chair. And, 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 and that is that you really primarily, one of the primary duties that you have to be the number one cheerleader for that entity. And so if you're the, if you're of the, the mayor or the chair of the school board, you have to be out there talking about the, the um, school system or the city, and, and ultimately that will benefit um, um, the district um, and, and how the school district goes is how the, the city goes. It's one of the big drawers to um, the, um, the locality. So that's what I would say. You have to be the number one cheerleader for the school district and, and the city. Great. Yeah, I 100% I agree. 
Uh, all right, Juan, one of the viewers wants to know it, um, if you could elaborate a little bit more on summer school programs and whether or not you think a, su a summer school session is sufficient to get kids back on track. Um, I, I, I think that it's going to be sufficient for many of our, uh, our students, or I, I don't know the percentage, but I, I know that it's going to be for some. I, I don't think that we had enough time at this point to say, okay, we're going to continue school. We're going to have year-round schools this year, you know, um, and start in June. And uh, um, we did discuss that, but I think that it is going to be, it's not going to be sufficient for all of the students, but I think it's a, it's a great start. Okay. You know, another question, um, really interesting one is a, uh, a single parent asked, um, you know, given what we've talked about in terms of, of what she's seen, what happens with student loans, should she be encouraging her daughter to go to college? Yeah, so I, I definitely think that that if it's her daughter's and your aspiration to go to college, I definitely would um, encourage her to go. And what I do when I'm counseling my students is that I definitely, uh, we look at the local scholarships because it's a ton of local. I just met with a high school student at Charlottesville High School, and we went over um, just based on what I believe he could apply for and he could do 20 different scholarships. It takes a lot of essays, it takes some organization, but if you apply, you will get it. And then once you get into the school that you want, you then go to that school and say, here I am, what do you have to offer? Many schools have tons of scholarships and things that they don't necessarily advertise that um, you can ask the financial, but if you don't ask, you don't receive. But I, I would encourage her to, um, you know, whether it's Charlottesville High School or Albemarle High School, they all I know have um, individuals in that school that will help them squirrel down and find particular scholarships and things that um, they can apply for. But I would say yes, I would say yes. Okay, yeah, I, I agree. Encourage it and like, like we talked about earlier, make sure that the student understands the implications of their career path, but yes, encouraging that. And it's so, not so like, Lee, yeah, sorry, um, go ahead, Juan. I'm sorry, sir. I just want to encourage, I mean, I just want to add on to that. I think they should go, but depending on what they want to do with their um, career, I'm just going to, this is a crazy example, but let's say that they want to be a plumber. I would say right now, you may not want to go to college, but you go to get your training and maybe down the road when you want to own your own business or move up you may have to go to but a lot really depends on what they want to do because it's no need to go into that big debt if you don't have to if you know to to achieve what you want to in life yeah and a uh, quick little plug for our organization Juan. if you want to start a business community investment collaborative offers a great workshop right there you go there you go yes great. lee and i on this board and um and so yes we help um, people start their their dream business and and so we provide that training and what you need for that yeah uh, uh yeah another another question here juan in this one's probably pretty apt to you is um you know given some of these uh these changes what sort of budgetary constraints uh does the city face that hinder our growth in in some of these ways and and what sort of budgetary increase would we need in order to make some of these changes a reality? Yeah, yeah. I don't know the specifics of what we need to, to um, increase, um, what it needs to be increased, but I can tell you what I think that if I'm like elected to, 
to the school, I mean, to city council, is that I think that we need to support our local businesses. This, this way that we allow our businesses to be up and ready for the business as people are getting more vaccinated, they're ready to go out and spend, our businesses will be ready, tax revenue will increase, that will reduce the burden for us to have mill tax, to increase the property tax, all that by um, supporting our businesses. And I think that that's something that for, I've been working in career readiness for the last 10, 12 years, and I, I know the job seekers, I know the businesses, and so I, I know that that is something that we can do. Um, every dollar that we put in towards that, we're going to get $5 back. And so that is, you know, um, I don't have an MBA, but I think that's a pretty good return on your investment. Great. Yeah. Thanks for that, Juan. Yes. Here's a, another question specific to you. Um, really good one. Are, are you worried that if elected as city councilor, you won't be able to dedicate as much time to education and you'll have to think about much, much more widespread issues? That's a great question. Uh, ironically, my wife just asked me that one day last week when we were out on, on a walk because I I was stopped by a young person that I'd mentored many years ago, and I just love that. And 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 I won't have that maybe as many opportunities to, to do that. But I would say is that I am worried a little bit about it right now. I tell you, I'm, I'm mentoring three or four young boys now. And, and just kind of follow up with a lot more that I've mentored over the years that I don't have to give as much time to, um, that I that we dedicate time to what we want. And I, I am at this point pledging myself that I'm going to continue, I think it to continue to mentor young people. I think that it would be incredibly powerful to me still to be able to mentor young people and to maybe talk to them about maybe it's a tough decision that I've gone through on city council, if I'm fortunate enough to get on it and, and how, what I had to go through to, to do that. And uh, cause I know I do some of that now on the school board and, but on city council, we're not only dealing with education, we're dealing about um, criminal justice. We're dealing about um, housing. We're dealing about the environment. So many more things that I think that will connect to the lives of, of, of that, that young person. But I hope to be able to do it. It bothers me some, but I think that I can still have an impact on a young person at a high policy level and a personal level. Great. Well, I think we've probably got time for one more question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to pick one here. So um, this parent's asking, um, given what we said about ch uh, child and preschool education, how, you know, what changes is the, is the city going to make for the, the birth to five education movement? How are we making that more of a priority given, given some of the changes you suggested? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we want city council to fund us on is, is the kind of whole reconfiguration. And one of that, what that, one of that part of that reconfiguration is um, Walker, the current Walker Upper Elementary School would simply essentially be a hub for, um, at this point, three-year-olds to, to kindergarten. And that's so that we can put our fifth and sixth graders back in Buford and elementary schools. And I think that once we do that, I think that we will have the space and ability to, to provide so much more now than, than what we're doing and potentially even going, doing, going down even further. 
but really at this point to say all of the three and four years on in the city they want to have that um, opportunity that we'll be able to to do it in a nice and enriching environment have space there maybe for parents to do different things that they want to, um, to do maybe training or or um, meetings um, in the schools there if they want to um, and so I think that the opportunity will be just limitless if we can get this reconfiguration thing done. Great. Well, Juan, thanks so much. Really appreciate uh, you answering so many wonderful questions and giving us your perspective. Um, tell, can you tell people if they, if they want to learn more either about your campaign, about you personally, where, where can they find you? Yeah, um, um, they can go to my website. It's my, my name, JuanDiegoWade.com. And that's it's a political campaign, but there you can find out a lot about me and where I stand. And, and someone who's just, me, for me, I've been intimately connected with this community for the last 30 years. I've been in the trenches, I'm still in the trenches, but I also understand the policy level and what it takes to get things um, done in, in this city. And I hope to continue that, that, that effort um, on city council. Great. Well, thanks all of you for, for joining in. Uh, really appreciate all of your wonderful comments. Uh, we look forward to you joining us next week when we have Peter Gaines, who's the head of the upper school at Tandem Friends School, hearing his perspective about what he thinks the future of education will be. If you're watching this later and if you have questions, again, you can, you can visit Juan at JuanDiegoWay.com or you can add comments and I'll make sure that he gets them. And from both Juan and I, we encourage everyone to stay positive Keep reaching out for help. And just remember, we're all in this together. Awesome. All right, Juan. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please listen to our other episodes to gain further insight into the future of education.